Today on the J. Doherty Podcast. Major developments in the U.S.-Iran conflict after the killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani. We'll see whether the recently ended retaliation skirmish between both nations remains resolved in its current state or if it returns to chaos. Is the media exaggerating? Are the Republicans telling the truth? And who is representing the genuine interests of normal citizens in the region? Also, the Consumer Electronics Show has just ended in Las Vegas, Nevada. We'll take a look at the most interesting technology soon to be released and how it impacts the economy. Are there any products of legitimate, practical, and consumable public interest at the event this year. We'll answer all that and more in episode number 118 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That is correct, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 118, Saturday, January 11th. 2020. Thank you very much for being here. It's 1.29 p.m. as we come on the air. I appreciate it. Very busy weekend this weekend. Uh, thank you so much to talk about in everything that I'm doing and everything that the world is doing. There is just a lot happening in all facets of the world right now. Uh, I guess the the major story, huge developments in the Iranian uh, situation with the death of Qasem Soleimani, how Iran is uh, is responding to this, how the government, how the people are responding to this. There is a lot of misrepresentation of the genuine interests of the people of Iran right now, and we're going to talk about all of that uh, right now. Um, and, and actually, I guess the, the headline or the, the, the thing that prompted the Iranian response to, of course, the killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, which if you want to learn more about that, I highly recommend you listen to episode number 117 of the Jade Doherty podcast, which preceded this one. The military action by Iran that was taken to retaliate against the United States killing the basically the equivalent of their vice president, uh, their FBI director, the, their CIA director, all these people combined in one, as many pundits are calling it, that action to retaliate against the United States in Iran, or in, it was, or in Iraq, sorry, their, their, their air base in Iraq, but sent by the Iranian government, appears to be intentionally misguided and deliberately weak. So that may deliberately seem counterintuitive, uh, or may seem deliberately counterintuitive, but uh, we will get into what that actually means. But before we get to that, we need to recap. So I think it's the most helpful thing in all of this, especially to tell the media to understand the history of the Iranian-U.S. situation. There is a lot of conflict that dates back all the way to the 1950s, probably more relevantly the 1980s, but we're going to look at the modern history of the United of the United States conflict in Iran. Ironically, the media is treating the killing of Soleimani as an isolated incident that is sort of terrible for the United States. Uh, when that would theoretically be good for Trump for the Trump administration, you know, it would it would negate any responsibility for military action that may be may be taken on behalf of Iran against the United States or vice versa, which of course did happen. Uh, before we get to that, we must look uh, at what led up to this action because it has taken quite some time, and there's there's certainly a lot more to come. I, I suppose the the the, the biggest uh, sort of uh, uh, propeller of this entire situation is in modern history was when George Bush said uh, that Iran is an axis of evil. He declared. Uh, according to CNBC in their little uh, very helpful timeline, which I highly recommend, which you can go to j-roy.com slash Iran timeline to learn more about. 
President George W. Bush declares Iran, Iraq, uh, and North Korea as a, quote, axis of evil. And U.S. officials accuse Tehran of operating a secret nuclear weapons program. And then, just a couple years later, Washington says to Iran, under the same administration, by the way, under the Bush administration, that we want diplomacy, we want, we, we, we're open to it. Washington says it is willing to join multilateral nuclear talks with Iran to, if it ver- verifiably suspends nuclear enrichment, which they have been doing a lot of. That was in 2006. And then in July of 2008, Bush, they actually get down to business. Bush sends an envoy for the first time to directly take part in nuclear negotiations with Iran in Geneva. So that seems to be going uh, pretty hunky-dory until Iran is secretly enriching their uranium. Britain, France, the United States are all announcing that they are actually building a secret uranium enrichment site at Fardo. And being, and this is about the time that, uh, or a little bit after the time that Barack Obama assumed the office of president of the United States. He says, "Look, I'm new to this this gig. I want I want to mend our relationship." So in 2009, he goes back and says, and tells Iran's leader that he would extend a hand if they would quote unclench their fist. Again, this Western philosophy of open arms to countries that you know have caused conflict in the past. Then. Uh, after they sort of, I guess, I, I don't know what the be- the best way to describe it is, they sort of uh, ignore Obama, or at least uh, put him on edge, the United States punishes Iran with sanctions. The Obama administration moves sanctions to foreign banks if they fail to cut Iranian oil imports, Iranian oil sales drop, and then that basically crashes their economy, or at least significantly degrades their, their economy, their, their domestic economy. It's, it's in that same time, in 2013, when uh, the president of Iran was elected, Hassan Rouhani, who's st- still currently the president of uh, Iran. He's elected uh, as the president on a platform of improving Iran's relationship with the world and its economy. The United States and Iranian officials uh, continue secret nuclear talks, or talks on the nuclear issue. So that's that's sort of when the uh, the concept, at least in Washington, was introduced of a nuclear deal. And then a couple years later, in 2015, the the deal is multilaterally signed by six major powers, in, in addition to Iran. And Iran agrees to curb its nuclear work in return for limited sanctions relief. Right, so they're basically saying, "Look, we're not going to enrich. We're not going to do any. Uh, we're not going to develop any nuclear weapons using the amazing amount of resources that we have just by the natural geographic uh, location of our, you know, assets. We're not going to do that if you just stop punishing us and sort of give us a little bit more money." Now, Trump, of course, hates this deal, and for many good reasons, I might say, as an independent, I must say, as an independent. So in May of 2018, after a couple of years of Trump being in the office, he just gets out of that deal completely. He just withdraws from it. And then he he just goes full-on sanctions with Iran. He basically cripples their economy. Uh, and then, as a result of that, as a result of Trump's aggressive action economically against the country with these sanctions, uh, they go back to working on uranium. I mean, if they're, if they're not gaining the benefits of this deal, then they're going to, you know, make the United States, the United States withdrawal as a liability. That's in May of 2019. 
Then it gets a little bit complicated when oil tankers are attacked in the Gulf. The United States blames Iran, and of course, which Tehran, the capital of Iran, denies, sort of like the Washington of Iran denies it. And then, as you may remember, as I talked about quite frequently in June over the summer, Iran shoot, shot down a U.S. drone that it says was in Iranian airspace, and even though they, it's sort of unclear how that actually happened. And then a couple uh, a couple months later on in December, just recently in 2019, attacks on a U.S. military bases in Iraq kill a U.S. citizen. The United States blames Iranian-backed militia inside Iraq and fires on its bases in retaliation. The U.S. Embassy in Baghdad is attacked by pro-Iranian protesters. So there's huge tensions at this point. And then in 2020, just recently in January, a U.S. airstrike in Baghdad kills Qasem Soleimani, the commander of uh, Iran's elite Quds Force, basically the terrorist wing of their government. And he's also, according to CNBC, the architect of of its growing military influence in the Middle East. Basically saying... I mean, Iran and a couple of other countries are basically responsible for the majority of the violence domestically in the Middle East. And for some reason, well, actually, I know the reason, because of oil and assets and development and stuff, the United States and Russia are constantly, the the two world major superpowers are constantly involved in these wars. So to begin the new year, Trump killed Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, and I talked about that in episode number 117. I highly recommend you listen to it. To summarize extremely briefly, though, if you are stubborn enough not to listen or you don't want to waste your time, uh, or not waste your time, but use your time in a different way, Soleimani was the leader of a terrorist division of the Iranian government. He was responsible for the murder of hundreds of Americans, thousands of humans, and theoretically next to take the reins of Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran. He was a bad guy, and now he's a dead bad guy, and that's as simple as I like to view it. Uh, But as within all deaths, and within all countries, within all stories, there's always two sides. And understandably, Iran as a country, or at least their leadership, is not happy about the United States' decision to kill Soleimani. That's sort of where we left off on episode number 117. But now, we are seeing thousands of people who went to the streets to mourn the death of this man. Who, again, as I said before... Uh, is being noted as the equivalent, the functional equivalent of the United States' vice president, the CIA director, or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, or all three. So the guy was a huge deal in terms of Iranian culture and Iranian agenda making. And if a death like this happened in the United States, I'm certain slimmer movements would be held to celebrate the person's life who died. But I w- what I was surprised to hear, however, is when I was listening to uh, WGN, the best station in the world, the best radio station in the world by far, a guy named Narimon Savavi came on to talk about the crisis. He's a local guy here in Chicago. He's an Iranian-American who was born in Tehran. He was uh, being interviewed by John Hansen, who was filling in for the world's best radio host, John Williams. And I always think it's very valuable, extremely valuable, actually, to hear what people on the ground think about it, people who are actually Iranian think about this, not what the Western media tries to push as a pro-Iranian agenda, trying to cover up and sort of reiterating what state media says about this. But I was really interested to hear what people, like legitimate Iranians, actually think about the situation, especially if they're American. And regarding these protests, Narimon said that there was actually a lot of governmental effort to sponsor these protests to make it look like people were actually sad about the death of this terrorist. Here's John Hansen asking him uh, if these are genuine protests. When you look back and uh, see some of the footage, I don't know if you've seen the, some of the footage of the funeral that was held. Yes. And you see, uh, I guess your fellow countrymen from where you're yeah, from originally, yeah. 
celebrating this man and you know going to the streets do you think some of that is uh do you think it's genuine do you think that the people really feel that way i think a lot of that is staged by these are sponsored kinds of uh, events by the government so a lot of it is staged but also a lot of people may feel like him you know he, they are pushed by president president trump's action into the arms of the regime and going along with him and calling him a hero because he is, uh, you know, he, he is a person who represented uh, defiance of attack against United by United States. So exactly. So basically, there's, he's saying uh, that people were, uh, they, they may have not been necessarily upset with the death of Soleimani, uh, you know, at all, because this guy literally supported regimes that killed their own citizens, that that brutally gassed their own citizens. This man who was leading their country, there is not going to be hundreds of thousands of people who are legitimately sad. In fact, there was an, a fabulous, an interesting, and really an article that was not publicized that much. It was an editorial an opinion piece in the Washington Post by Iranian journalist Masay Alinhadi, uh, Alinhadi, uh, sorry, Alinihad, uh, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. She's an Iranian journalist who describes how citizens will be jailed, shot, or even killed and punished for speaking out against the regime. So, I mean, it, it's crazy, the, the Iranian government, what they're doing. They're, they're trying to push this narrative that people are sad after this terrorist leader was killed, when many of them are actually not. And if they are, they're really more upset about Donald Trump, who has... Uh, who has only encouraged, as a result of the policy that he's pushed, uh, the violence in that region, or the, not, not, not fully, but in terms of the nuclear deal uh, and what he, how he pulled out of that, there was obviously going to be a short-term retaliation that sort of carried on into the long term. Even though the original Obama nuclear deal was not perfect by any means, in fact, it was actually pretty bad. But negotiating with basically a government that is partially made up of terrorists is not exactly the easiest thing. Even though, as Trump is saying right now, and as Obama has said in the beginning of his presidency in 2000, uh, or when he's tried to rectify this, not the beginning of his presidency, uh, in 2009, he was like, "Look, I want to start over. I want, I want peace. We don't want it. We don't want to fight. We don't want to get in these wars. We want to use. We want to have a mutually beneficial relationship where you make us money, we make you money, and and that's sort of the end of the day. I mean, the, the best saying in politics is follow the money, and that's what all Middle East wars are about." Going back to that article I was talking about in the Washington Post, before I read it, I, I don't want you to think that this is some intentionally picked conservative opinion piece that is, you know, specifically pointed to, uh, out to align with my views. No, this is actually a true and, and liberal, factual on-the-ground report from an outwardly liberal women's rights advocate who li has lived and lives on the ground in this region. This article is much more accurate and understandable than Martha Raddatz in the New York Times coverage and other U.S. and Western journalists who increasingly... Who generally just try to increase network ratings? They will literally insinuate treasonous, close to pro-Soleimani philosophies for their own political gain and alignment. That's what they're doing. They, they are they're so the, the the Western media generally is so bent on destroying Trump as a human being that they will say they will say that Soleimani, a person who is supported regimes that gas thousands, a person who is directly responsible for the murder of hundreds of U.S. citizens and leads a terrorist wing of a foreign government. They have said that he is a war hero. That is what I heard when I first looked up this story, way back when it started. So, what the Western media is trying to push is not only what I'm saying is 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 what they're doing is anti-Trump, but it also is inaccurately representing the, genu the genuinely anti-Trump philosophies of the Iranian people. 
people who literally agree with the Western media or the the United States media, their their sort of view as a as as a whole. I want to get to the point of what I'm trying to read here, but as I said yesterday, as an independent, not in the game of binary politics whatsoever, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, there must not be, there must be an uncrossable line where people just present the facts for what they are on Fox News and CNN. Their script should be nearly identical, and the journalists who are subjective should be labeled as such. It is for the good of the country and the good of the people. It is as simple as that. And by the way, you know, I've never really felt this passionate about the media and the way they treat uh, Iran and Trump policy until this conflict resurfaced. But seeing it firsthand, reading and watching ABC, CNN, NBC, versus reading legitimate accounts from military professionals and Iranian citizens, I mean, it, there's such a stark difference. And the, the second one is much more accurate. It's what needs to happen. I know I sound like I'm working against myself here, considering I'm just a shrew speaking in, you know, into a microphone who has arguably no place talking about this, but I feel like I am at least somewhat doing a service by, by telling you that you know, there's, there's value in getting a first-hand account of what is happening on the ground from people who have legitimate knowledge of what's happening on the ground, as opposed to people trying to make political points on networks for the sole purpose of increasing ratings. Um, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I'm just saying, I, I, I interject opinions from time to time, I, I, this podcast is specifically exists to be subjective, uh, but anyway, back to this liberal opinion columnist from an Iranian-American journalist who lives in the region with a first-hand perspective and a plethora of knowledge surrounding this conflict. It is really, really interesting uh, to see uh, what what's happening in what she actually says, it, it was it was published in the Washington Post. Masi Alinejad in the Washington Post said, "Quote: In this, she is again an Iranian uh, citizen or in a, a Middle Eastern citizen who is reporting on the ground has extensive knowledge of this sort of thing. She's actually a huge women's rights advocate uh, who has done really really good things for uh, you know religious freedom in that region." She says, quote, the media in the Islamic Republic is heavily controlled. Public gatherings are allowed only if they are pro-regime. Critics are jailed or shot. Even I, living outside of the country, have received a death threat on Iranian national TV for my coverage of Soleimani's killing. So it is not hard to use all the tools and the resources of the state to stage a funeral procession. So she literally admits, as a person living in that region, that many of these protests or, sorry, many of these funeral processions are fully staged by the government. And I'm sure there are many people who are legitimately mourning this man. I mean, it, it would be hard, but the extent of which the Iranian state media is pushing this is insane. And we'll talk specifically about uh, the Iranian state media, what I like to call the Iranian state media in a couple minutes, because, I mean, that is... The, we'll, we'll talk about it more in a second, but the, what they what it's it's officially not state media because it's owned by a separate company. But the person who runs it and the person who decides what gets put out is directly appointed by the supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei. So, you tell me who's actually running that that joint. There was also a really moving piece I saw on Reddit. Twenty-two year old Iranian here 
who says, quote, I am an Iranian who was born in Iran and moved to the United States roughly 20 years ago when I was 15 years old. Over the years, I have... Uh, oh, wait, this is actually a different uh, person here, so here, let me see. Um, I'm Iranian who was born here, born in Iran and moved to the U.S. roughly 20 years ago when I was 15 years old. Over the years, I've gone back to Iran a few times, as recently as a year ago. I have the same love for both Iran and the United States, and I can attest that Iranian people truly love the American people and want nothing but peace and friendship with Americans. Those who chant death to America are a part of the Iranian government and account for a very small number of the population. Unfortunately, the Iranian news outlets, which are run by the Iranian government, only broadcast hateful idiots who try to influence the rest of the population, which has not worked well for them over the years. At the same time, the U.S. media outlets only shows those same hateful idiots for their own propaganda and to spread fear so they can manipulate people's emotions to get better ratings because they have learned that nothing sells better than fear. Please do not fall for these manipulative tactics by both sides and know that you are truly loved by the Iranian people. It's totally true. It, that is wholly true, and you the only way, in my opinion, to get legitimate facts is about a situation is to interview the people who are being affected by it and interview experts on the subject. Martha Raddatz is not an expert on Middle Eastern policy. She, she's standing in the middle of a country abiding by the laws of a dictator, you know, meeting all their demands for journalistic integrity while, while vouching and reiterating comments from their state media. Not to mention the external conflict between Iran and U.S., which is, well, actually pretty tame, even though it could have gotten super out of control, but it didn't. And to be honest, we have to thank Iran for that. <laughs> even though Iran could also thank themselves for for making themselves not a target of annihilation by the most powerful military on the planet. Following the death of uh, General Soleimani, the Iranians were in a brief instant of rage, grieving over their lost general right, while fighting to maintain reason. And as a result, they have fired more than 22 missiles at the Al-Assad United States Air Base in Iraq, which is about 100 miles west of Baghdad, approximately. Of course, Iraq is sort of the awkward player in this entire situation, not even considering their domestic politics. Two countries, are, who are both basically like strategically partnered with one another, are fighting on their land. It's sort of weird. It's like two people that you know very well who don't live with you are fighting in your own house, and one of those people has a ginormous military relative to the other one. Anyway, there was a brief moment of panic in the overnight hours of Tuesday night as a result of these attacks. People were just absolutely going crazy. People were scared of being drafted. I mean, it, it was insane. They thought we were going to go to full-scale war with Iran because 22 missiles were launched, and we didn't even know the number of 22 at that time. The next morning, word spread that there was no, there were no deaths on Iraq side, on Iran side, uh, on United States side, because they missed. The attack missed the United States air base in Iraq, which automatically assumes, at least in my mind, A, that Iran uses really, really cheap and unpredictable missiles, or B, someone, some wingnut in the Iranian military programmed the missiles wrong, or C, they purposefully missed. I would think the likelihood of each of those options goes in descending order alphabetically, but C is the correct answer. They intentionally missed, is my theory. And the theory of many. And the reasoning behind it makes total sense. First of all, uh, we have to look at, at the way the media in, in, in Iran was covering it. The way that this attack was executed and theatrically hyperbolized makes you want to panic. And that is because the original ports, reports came from the IRIB, or the Islamic Republic of Iran Broadcasting, which is officially not a part of Iran, but as I talked about, they are not officially state TV, but the leadership is directly appointed by the Ayatollah Khamenei, so he's the one calling the shots. 
leading up to the attack, Iran was swiftly trying to imbue a sense of fear upon the United States, particularly from that independently owned news station. Of course, Western media like ABC reported on this and drummed up fear based off of what Iran said. As I was talking about, Martha Raddatz was in Iran talking about what happened and the uh, citizen reaction that she was basically just reiterating directly from the Iranian state media, uh, pushing their propaganda, doing the PR work of the Iranian uh, government. Earlier today, Iranian media quoted a top security official saying Iran has 13 revenge scenarios, any of which would be a historic nightmare for America. Okay, so basically fear-mongering the United States for absolutely no reason. Uh, because they clearly do not have 13 places. You're, you think of really a country that is, you know, this smaller than the, I mean, you know, small military, they, they all they have is really oil and land. And the United States has no place even being in Iran in the first place. Anyway, 13 attack scenarios from a small country who could literally be wiped off the map in a couple hours by the United States. I mean, come on, uh, you know. I don't know, and that, that, that's only the beginning of it, but I don't want to spend too much time on my anger against Martha Raddatz, who generally has actually been a decent journalist. In fact, she's pretty good at covering domestic politics. Like, you know, she was a decent commentator, actually p- pretty good commentator with Anderson Cooper, or, uh, sorry, moderator, uh, with Anderson Cooper at one of the um, final uh, 2016 debates where she was co- co-hosting with Anderson Cooper with when it was just Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. She asked some pretty good questions. But why do they have her out in the middle of Iran or Iraq? I don't even know. You know she's in Iran because she's following the, the dictatorship laws that the, they make the U.S. media follow, which is ridiculous, uh, over there. And... Yeah, they, she should be covering domestic politics if she's even on the air in the first place. Another report from MSNBC uh, by a guy named Ali Aruzi, who is their Tehran uh, bureau chief, said that Khamenei was in the room where it happened when these strikes occurred, and there was a plan for active air defense against the United States uh, should it be needed, which is just sort of trying to exaggerate the consequences in Iran, trying to, I mean, the Iranian state media trying to translucently hegemonize the United States for, you know, a couple of hours or so. And, of course, the ratings game, just like all, MSNBC fell for the trap. They absolutely fell for the trap, just like all of the uh, Western media organizations. I mean, which is just crazy. Here is Ali Aruzi reporting on what happened. We have reports as well from the IRGC that Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader of this country, was in the control room uh, coordinating all of these attacks. Uh, they're also reporting that Iran, Iran's air force has been deployed uh, and they are ready fear, to fear, intercept fear. any attacks from the United States. Now, of course, Chris, uh, Iran's uh, air force and navy are no match for the might of the U.S. military, but Iran does have this widespread network of militias in this region Mm -hmm. that are all located very close to U.S. personnel, U.S. bases. They have said time and time again that they could strike immediately at any of these bases and cause severe damage. So that's what we're expecting to happen next if there is an attack by the United States. Okay, so at least he did a little bit better of a job at it, but he was still, I mean, he was just uh, extremely dramatic trying to get those ratings up, and, and you know, you know, jog the amygdala is the, is the saying. That's what the media loves to do for their own ratings. It is dramatic. That was still, again, just to remind you, overnight, that, that, was, that was in the nighttime. President Trump was 
probably probably asleep at this time. <laughs> but he responded the next morning at the White House, and I, I really don't know who was advising him on his foreign policy, but he's actually doing a decent job in handling what he has control over. I mean, the speech the speech itself was full of lies, as usual. Uh, but it covered all the points that needed to be made in my mind. It was basically, no one was hurt in the attack that Iran posed to the United States. We want peace. We know you, meaning Iran, do not want war, but we want peace. That was pretty much it, in addition to a couple of subtle Obama jabs. Um, I think the most important slash insider thing that Trump had to say was... Iran appears to be standing down. So, everyone is okay, basically. No one's going to war. What Democrats were enraged by was when Trump said the money used for these two attacks, or for these attacks, came from the Obama administration. Iran's hostility substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013, and they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. So pretty much every single word in that sentence is an outright lie. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal was not signed in 2013, it was in 2015. I think that actually might have just been a mistake that Trump, uh, you know, read the teleprompter wrong, but he still lied. Uh, it was not $150 billion, it was actually more like $51.8 billion, and they, generally, the, the Iranian citizens do not chant de- death to America. They are genuinely good people, for the most part, that really want peace with the United States and are being subjected to tyranny by a regime that is a terror that is generally run by terrorists, or at least has a lot of uh, terrorist interference in their government. So it is unacceptable that the administration would say that death to America chants are accurately coming from genuine Iranian citizens who I like, who like I was talking about before, uh, you know, with that WAPO article, are in large part legitimately grateful for the funds that are given to them and the generosity of America. Uh, it would also be a pro- politically strategic move for Trump to not reinforce what Trump believes to be the citizens' misinformation, but rather to double down on the Iranian government's corrupt and state-sponsored forced citizen protests as further justification for the killing of Soleimani in the first place. Right? Doesn't that make sense? It's like, he should use this time not to to attack the citizens of a country that's being bombed by, or that, that's being, whose, whose leaders are being attacked. They should attack the government and why that was, why they even had to attack the government in the first place, because they are warmongering terrorists. Also, as I said before, the numbers that Trump referred to, $150 billion and $1.8 billion, are untrue. Congressional Democrats and the media were enraged by the statement. They just play this over and over and over again. It was pretty funny to, to, to see what they had to say about this. The, one of the headlines was, Trump attempts to pin some blame for missile attacks on Obama, outraging Democrats. And again, from that same article, it literally says, The $150 billion figure was an estimate of Iranian funds frozen in international accounts through economic sanctions that would be released after Tehran signed the nuclear accord. The actual amount that Tehran was able to obtain was far lower, experts said, perhaps under $50 billion. The additional $1.8 billion that Trump cited was money that the United States owed Iran after military equipment the country purchased from the United States in 1970s was not delivered amid tensions. Okay, why someone, why Obama or any president in any party, in any country, would intentionally fulfill a request by a terrorist government, especially when it has to do with billions of dollars of weapons? Why they would give him $1.8 billion? Was it just to butter them up, say, look, look, we're serious, we want diplomacy here? Because if that was, they, need to, they, they should have made that clear at the time. So, th- that, that's how each sort of, I mean, th- we first started with the people, then we were with Trump, 
And now let's talk about Congress. Congress was briefed privately by Secretary of uh, State Mike Pompeo, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, Staff Mark Milley, and CIA Director Gina Haspel. And the general conclusion about the briefing is that it was horrid, and it seems to have been pretty bad. It was disorganized, and it generally didn't even answer any of the questions from Congress, and also left out information about uh, regarding embassy attacks that the Iranian government was allegedly planning. So who's to blame for this, really? I mean, I don't know. Who the heck knows? It was a closed-door briefing, but it's probably Pompeo, all the people in the briefing, maybe the military. Uh, the, the Democrats were hooked on this line that there was an imminent threat coming from Iran. Obviously, Democrats hated it, and they, they would have anyway, but there's a Republican senator, Mr. Michael Shumway Lee of Utah, who said it was the worst briefing he had ever seen on a military issue. Again, keep in mind, he's a Republican here. The briefing lasted only 75 minutes, whereupon our briefers left. This, however, is not the biggest problem I have with the briefing, which I would add was probably the worst briefing I've seen, at least on a military issue, in the nine years I've served in the United States Senate. What I found so distressing about that briefing was that one of the messages we received from the briefers. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know why that cut out, but that, that's sort of what he had to say. He said it was the worst briefing he has ever seen. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they've been, the, he didn't use that term imminent, but what the Democrats have been saying is, why did you take this guy out at this time? What's your strategy here? And that is legitimate concern, and one that Democrats on the media are not actually using a lot. Democrats in Congress seem to be doing that, but to say that, that Soleimani was in, in any way a, a person, like a war hero, as the media has said many, many times, is just untrue. If, if Congress, I mean, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but, it, you know, Congress being hypocritical is, is a thing that happens every day. The media saying that a terrorist is a war hero is, uh, is not something that happens every day, and it's pretty, pretty awful. And also, to say that reaction to this sort of thing is not based on political association <laughs> is fully untrue. And an amusing example that uh, was recently surfaced was on during the Obama-Libya situation, which is, of course, a totally different situation that I don't even want to talk about much. But a reporter asked Nancy Pelosi, similarly to right now, whether or not Obama needed congressional authorization to take aggressive action against that foreign country, which which Democrats are understandably upset that he, that Trump didn't go to Congress before to authorize the attack before he actually did it. Uh, and Nancy Pelosi, of course, says that, that that's a deplorable action. Why the heck didn't he come to Congress? He violated procedure, this and that. But then in 2009 or 10 or 12 or something, when she was asked that exact same question about the Obama administration, she literally just responded with, yes, that's okay. Madam Speaker, Madam Leader, you're saying that the president did not need authorization initially and still does not need any authorization from Congress on Libya? Yes. Okay, so that's exactly what she says. And, I mean, you know, that's what all the, the, the sort of the reaction has been. 2020 candidates, of course, use this uh, as a political opportunity to attack uh, Trump even though their party gave Iran billions of dollars to begin their economy, or at least jumpstart it in a way. Again, I'm independent and fair against these people. Um, let's, let's take a look at what Vox had to say about this, and they actually did a pretty decent job of summarizing the way uh, how 2020 candidates sort of went uh, about responding to this. Really interesting tweets from, uh, from uh, so many different people. Uh, there's a lot of coincidental poll numbers that have rised as a result of this latest Iran uh, idea here. The Des Moines Register 
who is uh, basically the, the, the public one of uh, one of many publications in Iowa who is, of course, hosting the major caucuses. Bernie Sanders still leads a war in his second. Pete Buttigieg third, who's after Joe Biden, who, uh, and then Amy Klobuchar, and then Andrew Yang, and then Cory Booker. Andrew Yang is above Cory Booker, who's, abo- who's above Tulsi Gabbard, who's above Tom Steyer, who's above Michael Bloomberg. I would never have said that, I would never think to say that the two billionaires running are the last in the poll numbers. It's kind of funny. Um... Uh, so that's sort of interesting. Interesting. It was also interesting is that Warren had the best and Sanders had the worst response to this entire Iran situation. Klobuchar is actually up there with Elizabeth Warren in terms of reasonable responses. But Bernie Sanders said, quote, When I voted against the Iraq war in 2002, I feared it would lead to greater destabilization in the region. That fear, unfortunately, turned out to be true. The U.S. has lost approximately 4,500 brave troops, tens of thousands have been wounded, and... We've spent trillions, which is all true and all terrible. Trump's dangerous escalation brings us closer to another disastrous war in the Middle East that could cost countless lives and trillions more dollars. Okay, that part is ridiculous. We have been with we have been in a war with Iran for forty years, forty years since nineteen eighty, even longer. Some people say. I mean, th- as we've said before. Uh, the idea, and again, I, I sort of understand why Democrats get upset when when Trump says things like Obama funded this attack, but Obama did give $51.8 billion to the Iranian government at one point to jumpstart their economy in order to trust them that they would be good people, even if his predecessor, or sorry, his successor, didn't uh, pull out of a deal, pull out of the deal that he signed, in meaning that if, if they're no longer a part of the deal and the United States pulls out of it, then we're no longer, they're no longer responsible for, you know, fulfilling that deal, meaning that they could literally start developing nuclear weapons and do whatever they want against the United States. So, by that virtue, the, the short-term strategy of the original Iran nuclear deal did not help President Trump in that it would literally, Obama signed that deal basically as a, assuming that Democrats would be in the office constantly and they would agree with him on foreign policy in every single way. Because the fact is that Obama probably signed this deal thinking, look, it'll hold the Iranians over and then, you know, once I'm out, it's the next guy's problem. Trump, says Bernie Sanders on Twitter, Trump promised to end endless wars, but this action puts us on a path to another one. Okay, well, that's just untrue. I mean, I, I, I mean, the world is a much safer place now that Soleimani is dead. Uh, that is just an undeniable fact. A better response was, a refreshing response came from Elizabeth Warren, who, again, I have a lot of problems with, too, who says, quote, Soleimani was a murderer responsible for the death of thousands, including hundreds of Americans. Perfect way to open this sentence, literally. Bernie Sanders did not say that. He did not establish that this man is a terrorist. Warren goes on to say, but this reckless move escalates the entire situation with Iran and increases the likelihood of more deaths and new Middle East conflict. Our priority must be to avoid another costly war. Good. That was much better. The middle sentence I didn't like, but the first, second, and last sentence was decent. Or sorry, the first sentence and the last sentence was decent. Klobuchar, as I said, actually had a more elaborate statement that she put out on Twitter that was longer. She says, Qasem Soleimani was responsible for directing uh, directing Iran's destabilizing actions in Iraq, Syria, and throughout the Middle East, including attacks on U.S. forces. Perfect. That is how you should open a statement. That is how you should say. You should establish the context of what Soleimani did, how bad of a person he is. 
but she goes on to say, just similarly to Elizabeth Warren, the timing, manner, and potential consequences of the administration's actions raise serious questions and concerns about escalating conflict. Our immediate focus needs to be on ensuring all necessary security measures are taken to protect U.S. military and diplomatic personnel in Iraq and throughout the region. The administration needs to fully consult with Congress on its decision-making, response plans, and strategy for preventing a wider conflict. Perfect response extremely, I mean, that was probably the best response, actually probably better than Elizabeth Warren. Perfect response. Not political, literally just almost instructing what she would do as president. We need evidence that you will be a good president, not to bark down someone's throat about liberal ideologies that have, you know, outdone the West. Elizabeth Warren's statement was actually pretty hypocritical now that I think about it. There was a statement that was put out uh, by her on the Iran nuclear deal, she says, quote, a nuclear-armed Iran, and this was in 2015, in August 3rd, 2015, when the deal was signed, not in 2013, as Trump accidentally said, or maybe even intentionally lied to say, this deal was signed in 2015. Warren, in 2015, says, quote, a nuclear-armed Iran threatens the United States, Israel, and the world. The question now before Congress, the only question before Congress, is whether the recently announced nuclear deal rep- uh, agreement represents our best available option for preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. After carefully reviewing the text of the agreement, consulting with experts both in and out of the government, and receiving extensive briefings from President Obama, Secretary of State Kerry, and Energy Moniz, or Secretary of Energy Moniz, I am convinced that it does. Okay, well, thank you, Elizabeth Warren. You're just saying that a plan that jumpstarts the Iranian economy by giving them $51.8 billion to fungibly sort of increase their development in in military resources is going to help the Iranian government. Now, of course, I know and I agree that Trump's pulling out of that so abruptly did not help this, and it's probably, if if this deal continued to be instituted, it was still going to be short-term strategy, and it still would have hurt. So, is both Obama and Trump's fault on this one? But... Klobuchar, Sanders, and the rest of the Senate campaigns also had uh, people, senators who are running campaigns, had similar statements, but went in depth on why they were voting for uh, it for the original nuclear accord. Uh, besides the fact that they had to do it because they were Democrats, uh, obviously Warren had to vote for this and with Obama. But I'm just pulling her as an example to show how virulently hypocritical any candidate of any party can be in an election, especially if they've held public office before uh, running. And I'm not saying this to say that all 2020 candidates are stupid. I'm just declaring as an independent slash non-Democrat slash non-Republican that, yes, the Obama nuclear deal was a short-term and lenient strategy that sort of what I would like to call a not-my-problem strategy. In other words, it would help the Iranians and Obama during his time in office, but after he's gone, it's the next guy's problem. And clearly, this is now Trump's problem. It's not in my opinion, any deeper than that, as a lot of conservative pundits like to suggest. They think that Obama had sort of this binary solution in that we could only appease them or go to full-scale full scale war with them, but I don't think that's actually the case. I think he was literally just trying to have a quick, concise deal with Iran because he didn't want to have problems in Iran with that region during his time in office and didn't really care what happened next. I have to say that, uh, as I said yesterday, the media has gone to incredible lengths to be specifically anti-Trump in their coverage of the situation, even when Soleimani's death should be a universal victory for the United States and the majority of the world. Where they should be criticizing President Trump, in my mind, is the apparent lack of strategy as presented in this situation, at least publicly, when it comes to Iran. 
the media should not be saying that an unpredictable chain of events are to come as a result of this, in, you know, of this attack, like Jim Acosta said on CNN. They think that it's going to come as a result of an inevitable and continuing long-term conflict between the United States and Iran, which, by the way, has been going on for, you know, as I said, about four years or whatever. And the eternal conflict that Iran faces has been going on for almost 1,400 years, of course, with the internal Shiite versus Sunni problem. So, you know, going back to what I said about the Bush era policy, if you don't understand the history of the U.S.-Iran conflict, how Iraq plays into it, what Soleimani did to Lebanon, his actions, of course, with Beirut, which are totally cruel, and also Yemen and Syria and the Gaza Strip, you have to understand these actions to come to the conclusion that at least it is a victory that Soleimani's hateful ideologies and active threats to America and allies of America have been neutralized. At least with that isolated incident. There are other frustrations that I understand Democrats and even some Republicans are having, uh, such as, number one, Congress wasn't notified beforehand. Number two, like I said, there was no public strategy with Iran, and, uh, you know, sort of meant other than to hope for the best, which actually kind of worked this time. Uh, the chain of uh, the chain reactions from other countries is something that many people are complaining at. Complaining, complaining about the fourth thing is that the fact that in his statement, according to Vox, he, you know, Trump lied or made a misleading statement every 39 seconds and many, many more. So in conclusion, I believe that in order to effectively uh, form policy, you must understand the history of the U.S.-Iran conflict, the way Iraq and sort of the awkward go-between, sort of the awkward go-between in this case, and what Soleimani actually did, his role not only as a terrorist, but a terrorist leading a group of terrorists and the terrorist wing of government who was fr not friends with the United States and majority terrorist. I mean, I say the word terrorist four sentences within, in Iran, and many of them are, and they, you know especially certain wings of the government. You also have to understand that Soleimani is effectively a sponsor of the war in Yemen, the violence in the Gaza Strip, the outward support he has had for Bashar al-Assad, who has gassed his own citizens repeatedly. I mean, the media is saying that the world is a more dangerous place now that this man is dead, a person who supported people who gassed their own citizens and is directly responsible for the murder of hundreds of U.S. troops. How, how can you say that a person, who, this person who was just killed the world is now a less safer place because this man is killed. It's a more dangerous place. You know, I have my major problems with Trump. I, I, I certainly have those. I do think, though, that the world should be grateful that a person who supports a person who gasses their own citizens, encourages violence, arms people for wars, and kills American troops regularly as a day job is dead. The lack of imminent threat argument that the Democrats and the media is pushing is invalid, in my opinion, because this guy's day job, in fact, when they took him out, you know, was to kill Americans. When they took him out, literally when they authorized the drone strike on this man, he was reportedly meeting with other terrorists to coordinate an attack that would kill 5,000 people. Do you see that on the Western media being publicized? No, absolutely not. There was actually two, only two articles devoted specifically to the subject, and one of them was from the United Kingdom, not even in the West. The one in the United States was from Business Insider, and I thankfully and humbly congratulate Sam Fellman from Business Insider, who said in the uh, who devoted an entire story to this uh, idea, which is titled "Why Iran's Qasem Soleimani was on a not so secret trip to Iraq when he was assassinated." He literally says, and this is not being publicized whatsoever. You turn on CNN, ABC, MSNBC any place, and you skip back 12 hours, you probably, chances are you're not going to hear about this. It literally says that, quote, we now know that this trip likely had a secret component, coordinating an intensifying campaign of rocket stripes to maim and kill some of the 5,000 American troops based there. 
He was literally meeting to coordinate an attack that would kill thousands of U.S. troops. And the media has the gall to say that the world is a more dangerous place because this man is dead. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Ah, quite quite the week in 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 foreign policy and around the world. We're going to take a break. It's 2.17 on the Jay Doherty Podcast. Uh, if you're listening on the broadcasting live version, highly recommend you share this podcast with your friend. We'll be right back to talk about CES. They have a lot of cool but less consumable tech for 2020 planned, and boy, is it interesting to see what they have in their uh, lineup there. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. Great, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 118. Thanks for being here. Talking about policy and world, world politics, now we're moving on to technology, which is another big focus of this podcast. CES, Consumer Electronics Show, it's an event that happens uh, once every year, usually in Las Vegas, and it has happened once again. CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, generally supposed to be what it says at, at face value, sorry, face value being a consumer electronics show is basically not a consumer electronics show. As put best by Matt Smith with 1T over at Engadget, the consumer electronics show is a place where dreams are pitched to dismissive investors and crowdfunders. He says that there are thousands of companies, startups, and interest groups all jostling for the eyes of CES attendees in the assembled media and it's easy to get excited with flying taxis, home robots, and folding phones all on the show in one location. It is the future the day before it happens. That is what CES is. It is not a consumer electronics show. <laughs> um, now, that's not to say that there are not cool or crazy or good stuff over at CES, but rather that it is exactly what I'm saying. CES is crazy tech, and that is sort of the problem. Good and useful tech is crazy expensive with super high interest, so it was amusing. Most of the tech is only to provide a platform for countries to provide ultra uh, companies, sorry, to provide ultra high-end products for a showcase. While consumers sort of wish and hope to even be able to afford these products if they are even available for the public to purchase. So uh, there are some pretty cool ones though uh, that we saw this year. There was a Sony electric car that Sony isn't even actually making. They just you know put it out there for their own personal satisfaction of having validation that they worked on something useful. The big subtitle here is, no, you can't buy it. <laughs> it is an electric car that has one, two, three, four, five monitors, no, six monitors, it looks like here. Six monitors in one car, uh, which is pretty cool. It looks awesome. It's really, really cool. Uh, and according to uh, the, the review by The Verge, quote, the animations of these menus were fluid, clever, and just overall excellent. For instance, a quick L swipe at the top of the middle screen moved whatever was currently on display to the passenger screen, an interaction that felt deeply satisfying. There was also more than one way to interact with the user interface. A separate trackpad extends out from the center console that can be used to tap through menus and is capable of uh, multi-touch gestures. 
It's also where the driver and passenger can change the car's climate control settings, and below that was a big silver dial dedicated to volume control and also serve other purpose, which is pretty awesome, and it's a very modern car. But to say that this is a consumer (laughs) product is sort of laughable. Really, really interesting car, though. Super awesome car. You can change the comfort. You can have presets for what you want to uh, have in your car. At least there's three that come with it, and then there's also a custom option. You can have suspension turned up or down, steering wheel turned up or down, acceleration. You can go into your settings and choose if you want to feel like you're driving in eco mode, in comfort mode, or in sport mode. Uh, And it's pretty cool. You have 277 miles on an 82% charge, according to the images shown here. On this uh, fine fine car on, on The Verge. We'll link it there. If you want to find more about it, go to j-story.com slash Sony car. It's called the Vision S car. Wow, pretty cool. But again, not consumable. Uh, what is slightly more consumable, or at least will be in, in the future, is an 8K bezel-free screen and later 4K rotating TV which is awesome, I mean, just amazing if you have, you know, the money, the time, and the want to upgrade to an 8K TV, or the video to even run on an 8K TV, Uh, and that does not include YouTube videos, because YouTube just downscales it so incredibly much that you're not even, I mean, it's hard to notice, but you're not really getting the, the full, the full veracity of 8K experience. Samsung has this TV that is inconveniently named the Q950TS 8K TV. Uh, it has a what they call a bezel-free infinity screen. So, it literally looks like a picture frame, and it's really thin. 99% image and 1% border. 1% border. That's pretty crazy. And this is, of course, uh, as a result of Digital Trends Fabulous Reporting. On this, another cool TV that was released is called the Cero. There's really interesting, really fascinating videos of this. It's a rotating 4K TV, which was released back in Korea in April 2019. It has an integrated motor on the back of the screen, uh, on the back of the mount, which rotates the screen when if you're airplaying for, oh, not airplane because it's, uh, I don't know if it supports airplay, but if you're mirroring somehow your phone to the screen, and you rotate your phone to see uh, landscape video, the TV will also rotate with you, which is pretty cool, also useless, because you could just watch the, um, you could just shoot all horizontal video, uh, or what I guess I suppose is a little bit more useful, but also sort of useless, is that you can watch a vertical video in full portrait mode instead of landscape mode. Or we could just, you know, stop shooting vertical video. That would solve all the problems and it cost you negative $7,000 or whatever this thing costs. So, that's sort of interesting. Samsung also released this thing called The Wall. It's an 8K Ultra HD that comes in 88, 93, 110, 150, and 292 inches. They all come together and combine The Wall. So, that's sort of interesting. The wall supports HDR10+, and can be set to display curated artwork, such as paintings and still photography, when it's not in use. Uh, I'm going to use my 8K TV to display a black and white image of a forest. I mean, really. 
especially when you're not even getting, like, legitimate quality out of it. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. A lot of interesting trends. Uh, and I actually really like CES and what they do. I mean, we've, we've talked about them before. We covered it last year. Uh, but I do not like the misleading title of the conference itself. That's sort of my view on the entire thing. And I really like it. I highly recommend you uh, look at the fabulous reporting from people who are on the ground there. MKBHD, as always, did a fabulous job talking about it on his YouTube channel, Marquez Brownlee. Highly recommend you go subscribe to that channel and do a lot of other things with your life. Thank you so much for listening. I feel like this was a pretty good comprehensive episode, especially with the Iran thing. So I appreciate your listenership. It's Saturday, January 11th, 228. As we end this fine episode number 118 of the Jade Rory Podcast, please share this friend, share this podcast with your friend or share this friend with your podcast. I'd be very, very grateful for that. Also, consider subscribing to it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, also, leave a good rating if you so wish to do so and you think that it is justified. Thank you so much for listening to episode number 118 of the J. Doherty Podcast. The J. Doherty Podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by J. Doherty. TJDP is voiced by Newsmic VoiceOver, hosted by Blueberry, and edited with Audition. The J. Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright J. Doherty 2019. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for weekly discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the J. Doherty Podcast. For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the J. Doherty Podcast on j-doherty.com.